Hi there, Glocal citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, coming to you from Brooklyn. Wow, how summer flies. I'm looking outside at what is a cloudy day and a few days of rain that are ahead of us, but not before a great weekend. That's going to be a wonderful party weekend in these Brooklyn streets. It's the Michael Jackson and now Prince celebration. Oh my gosh. So just be on the lookout for that in your socials. And in any case, I'm happy to be hosting a neighbor, (laughs) not only in physical, but also in um, our existential selves to some extent. And he is currently the executive brand marketing director at J.P. Morgan Chase, where he manages the Sapphire and Freedom Unlimited portfolios. Prior to this role, he partnered with Complex Media Networks to create Climate, an agency built to help brands harness the power of youth culture. He has also worked with brands such as Nike Basketball, National Basketball Association, Converse, Beats by Dre, the Brooklyn Nets, Pepsi, Budweiser, and a host of other brands that have impacted popular culture. He's taken this experience and applied it to his desire to bring the African diaspora together. In 2019, he partnered with celebrated Senegalese chef, Pierre Tian, to open a West African concept restaurant called Taranga which has been celebrated as one of the top 20 places to eat in New York City. And I can say, the food is wonderful. So Mr. Stanley Lumax, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So let's get started. Where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft? Wow, that's a complicated question. So my, my heritage is from Ghana. My father is from the Volta region, Kita, specifically so he's of the Awe tribe, and my mother is Ga, and she's from the Osu area of Accra. Okay. Uh, I was born and raised in Plainfield, New Jersey, and after high school, I moved to Philadelphia, where I went to Temple University. And after Temple, I moved to New York City, which was sort of the dream and, and what felt like the, the next obvious step. So that means you are local. I am now local to Brooklyn. Okay. Awesome. Clinton Hill. Hill, That's where we are. So when you talk about being from Plainfield and playing from from New Jersey and and the dream being in New York, how did that dream manifest? I mean, particularly coming from a family, an immigrant family in the U.S., you know, of course, you know, you see the big city be big lights. But but how did that dream manifest for you specifically? I think for me, I've always been open to seeking opportunity as it comes. And going to Temple University, pledged a fraternity, Kappa Alpha Psi. Mm -hmm. And one of the blessings that came out of that was meeting a brother named Toma Achilanu, a Nigerian brother. And Toma was at school in Columbia, and he was a year ahead of me. He and um, another brother... Blair Shaw, and they were working at a law firm called Davis and Polk on 45th and Lexington. They asked me if I was interested because at the time I was thinking of law school and they said, look, you know, we're doing this two year program here and then we're going to law school. And they got me an interview at the law firm. I got accepted. I got a job offer and that's what brought me to New York. Mm -hmm. But um, I think as a 
tri-stater, you know, for most of my life outside of living in Ghana, New York was just always the sort of path, right? Like, I remember getting job offers from Boston and, you know, it just wasn't even in my consideration set. Like, you know, New York just felt like the right place to be. It was close enough to home where I could still be around my family, but it was also New York City. So you kind of answered my why the where question. And so that's the how did you come to be living and working and playing where you currently are. But let's dive a little deeper into the why the where and and enter Brooklyn. How did Brooklyn become your place? So Brooklyn became my place because, you know, I got this job in Midtown and my family was living in New Jersey and I was staying at home until I figured it out. And another frat brother, a guy named Garrett Wynn, lived in Bed-Stuy. And I had never really spent any time in Brooklyn other than going to visit, you know, aunties and, you know, family. And that wasn't really an experience. It was more like, you know, get in the car, drive, you know, get out. You know, I had an aunt that lived in Ebbets Field. I had a, another aunt that lived in, like, Brownsville. So I didn't, my, my Brooklyn experience wasn't, you know, one of, wow, this is amazing. I can't wait to move here. It was more of, you live in Brooklyn? (laughs) You know what I mean? You live in Bed-Stuy? Yeah. So as I mentioned, my friend Garrett lived over here and, you know, I would come visit him and I realized, wow, this is actually pretty cool. And I got comfortable with the neighborhood. It was also what I could afford. Mm -hmm. And um, I found my first Bed-Stuy apartment on Decatur and Ralph Ave. So just thinking about the Brooklyn of them, because you mentioned Ebbetsfield and most people don't even know anything about that. So (laughs) tell us a little bit more about like the transition. So your first moving here was probably about 20 plus years ago. Yes. Yes. And we've all, you know, noticed and, and lived this transformation. So tell us about how the transformation in Brooklyn has also transformed you as a professional. Wow, that's a deep question. So I think I think the transformation of Brooklyn has been interesting. And I'll tell you a story that I remember when I, when I lived in Bed-Stuy. You know, again, I was living alone and, you know, pretty much just kept to myself, wasn't really, you know, of the, of the community at that point, just really focusing on, on me. Um, and I remember sitting on my, my steps. I lived in a, a brownstone. And I was sitting on my steps and the older woman neighbor of mine was sitting on her steps. And, (laughs) you know, it was a Saturday morning and we're just, you know, hanging out on our steps. And we see about 10 random, it felt random just because you never really saw it. We saw like 10 white people together walking down Decatur Street. Uh And we both just looked at each other with with almost like a shock, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I felt like that was the moment where things started changing. Mm. Um, mm. You know, so obviously, you know, that was an early sign of, of gentrification. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about a neighborhood where, you know, my, my neighborhood options in terms of food were, you know, the Jamaican hole in the wall or obviously Chinese food. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Or the Kennedy. The exactly. Fried chicken. Exactly. Um, so it was, you know, it was really interesting to just see things evolve. And, and, and honestly, you know, 2005, 
I was able to, you know, buy my first property and mm -hmm. I, I was able to move to Clinton Hill. And, you know, for me, that was part of my my evolution. You know, like I lived in Bed-Stuy and always wanted to live in Clinton Hill or Fort Greene because that's where it felt like the energy mm -hmm. was. Mm -hmm. And here I am, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? So it, it definitely was a sense of accomplishment. Mm -hmm. But I do, one of the things that I think is interesting is being in Clinton Hill for, you know, probably 12 years now, I do look back and think all the people that I wanted to be around are now in Bed-Stuy. <laughs> right. So I thought right. that was really interesting. I worked yeah. so hard to get here just to be alone yeah. again. That is so interesting that you say that. And one of the things that I neglected to mention is that this is my first uh, husband-wife duo, not duo, but um, many of you may have listened to one of the episodes, and I'll put in the show notes, that hosted... Uh, a wonderfully talented and humanitarian guest is Asmara Berry Lumax. And so you may notice that. And that is Stanley's wife. And she has, you know, speaking about Bed-Stuy, she has the One Love Community Fridge Project, which is growing and thriving. And so I think it kind of shines a light on what you're mentioning about the gentrification and seeing people move move around and move back and how Bed-Stuy is now uh, a different kind of epicenter of creativity and action and also food to some extent, right? So tell us about how food became so much of who you are now. Well, I definitely think food became a part of me at an early age. Um, you know, obviously we share a Ghanaian background, mm -hmm. so you, you already get where I'm going. But you know, I grew up in a house where my mom and dad were the oldest of each of their, you know, families. And when they bought a home in New Jersey, they utilized that home to give their younger brothers and sisters an opportunity to move to the States and start their lives here. And, you know, I literally at ages, let's say eight, nine, ten, was surrounded by aunts and uncles, you know, that were working really hard at menial jobs to stay, save money, to go to college and, you know, start their, their family. And one of the things that we always had was food and music, right? Like there was always aunts in the kitchen cooking. And on weekends, there was always this like desire because they were in their 20s at mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. There was always this desire to bring the community together, right? Mm -hmm. Like they'd be working so hard during the week that the weekends were an opportunity to celebrate and, and really sort of bring people together. So food has always been a really important piece in terms of our lives. And as I grew older and I, you know, obviously started a family and created a community of my own, I missed and longed for that feeling of, you know, community that I had growing up. So I started my own. And, you know, obviously being a marketer, I was always thinking about how to bring people together and, and, you know, the importance of a brand and so on and so forth. And one day I woke up and I decided I wanted to have some people over. I wanted them to have African food um, and listen to African music and, and really just connect on our, you know, Africanness, right? Mm -hmm. So African Shop House was born, 2017. One of the things that also inspired it was the realities that at the time, then President Trump was deporting a lot of our, our people. And, you know, I felt like it, there was a need to bring us together. There was a need for us to share our commonalities and our struggles and our challenges. And obviously food was a great way to do that. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting that 
six years later, you know, I have a restaurant and I'm still doing African Chop House and my wife is feeding the community mm-hmm. as well with One Love Community Fridge. I love that. I love that. So a couple of things come to mind when you, you mention. first of all, tell us, well, I know it because we're both Ghanaian, but tell us about a chop house. So so how that that particular language about African cuisine, tell us what, because, you know, when you're on the streets of Accra or Kumasi or, or many African cities, the, the idea of come chop is is there. So tell us about how you have, you know, brought that into and how you, just the definition of what it is and how that is part of the ethic. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, again, being a brilliant marketer as I am mm-hmm. um, and, and knowing the importance of, of having an insight, the insight was really simple. When you think about the concept of a chop bar back home, it's not necessarily a fancy place. It's a really basic place. Some people would even call it a hole in a wall mm-hmm. that allows people to gather, eat traditional foods, you know, have conversation, dialogue and network. And that was really the simple inspiration for what I do. Our mission is celebrating African culture through food, music and community. So we try to bring amazing people together. We try to highlight people with projects, businesses and stories to tell. That way they not only connect with the community, but the community connects with them. You know, and again, it really just started off, it started at my house. So, mm, you I know, it, it was called Chop House because it was at literally in my house. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it just continued to grow. I mean, obviously with social media, you know, that was a really big part of our growth. You know, having friends in the media spaces, you know, I got to give credit to Abiola. Okay, he was one of the folks that, you know, uh, gave me a platform um, in terms of elevating what we did, you know, from a media standpoint. Mm-hmm. You know, I think one of the big moments that allowed us to continue to grow was after doing it at my house for so long, you know, I was ambitious and I wanted to see if I could do it other places. Mm-hmm. And we did an event in L.A. Mm-hmm. during uh, NBA All-Star, which also happened to be the day that Black Panther came out. And mm-hmm. we we, uh, we did an event with Luau Dang. And uh, my good friend Pops Mensa Bantu, and it was a success. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, once you start seeing success outside of your comfort zone, you start getting more ambitious. And I think the next one after that was South Africa. Right, yeah. uh, a good friend of mine, Mosito Ramali, welcomed me back to Johannesburg and his community. And we were able to do a really successful one there. So yeah. successful that the next year I went back to South Africa and within two days, <laughs> you put one on sure. um, and it was also successful. So, you know, it's really been about the community embracing what we do and making sure that we shine a light on, you know, all the greatness that the diaspora as a whole has to offer. I like that. So before we get into the business of it all, because there has to be that that supports it, I want to ask about global speak. So you mentioned obviously traveling and being a global citizen. And so we like to hear what you hear. So I ask you to share a word, a phrase or a saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why you've come to value it as a local speak. Wow, that's that's a that's a really rich question. Chale? I'm gonna ah, go with Chale. Chale, okay. Um, I'm gonna go with Chale uh-huh. because obviously it's it's such a Ghanaian word. Yeah. It's a word that I've used, it's the word that I've heard growing up. You know, it really defines who we are as a, as a people. Mm-hmm. And it's just a you know, it's a comfort word. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? If mm-hmm. I if I hear someone using it or 
understanding the concept of it, you know, more than likely it's someone that yeah. I want to I want to speak to and get to know, you know, okay. more. Yeah. So I, I'll, I'll go with that. Okay. I feel like chale is like an ad- adaptogenic word. So it's like adapts for the situation, for sure. and it really, yeah, it really does shine a light on um just that that piece of culture. So okay, the business. So you first started by saying you got an internship at a law firm or a, a job mm-hmm. at a law firm. And so that's where you started. But you've mentioned the brilliance of your marketing expertise. Mm-hmm. And that's where you are, right? That is what you were known for. Beyond that, you were also, uh, when we first met, so we first met in a service capacity in Ghana. That's the first time we met was shortly after you got married. And it was at an um, African Health Now. And many of you might remember again, that's another guest. Um, we were all volunteering for Nana Aisanakiwowo's African Health Now health fair. And so photography was what I understood as your your craft then. And so now when you think about your craft, first of all, I don't even know if you answered what the craft was in the craft question. So let's talk about your craft. So what is your craft? And um, and tell us how you made out, how you transitioned from law to, to now. So when I was in college, I had an internship at another law firm called Montgomery Walker and Rhodes. And... You know, that, like, in my head, I mean, you're Ghanaian, you understand that we have three choices, Mm -hmm. lawyer, doctor, engineer. Yeah. So I chose lawyer and, you know, I I went down that path and realized that it wasn't fulfilling. Mm -hmm. And I jumped ship and got into marketing and advertising, which, you know, immediately felt like the right thing for me to do. And to your point, photography has been something that I've always been passionate about. I've always carried a camera. If you yeah. think about, you know, 99 and, and you know, 20 years ago, yeah. a lot of people weren't carrying cameras like right. they were today. So, mm-hmm. you know, I always walked around with a big SLR and honestly that opened a lot of doors for me. And it was just something that I was super passionate about. So it allowed me to, you know, capture periods of time and honestly, in a weird way, differentiated me from a lot of people when looking for jobs. So as I got into advertising and marketing, you know, I started out at a small agency called Chisamingo Group. And then I went to a medium-sized multicultural agency called the Don Coleman uh, Advertising, which then became Global Hue. And then I got a job at Ogilvy & Mather, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, Mm -hmm. what some people would think about as let's say the Harvard of advertising just because it's it's so prestigious and so on. And while there, on weekends, I would, uh, a good friend of mine named Rashawn Smith from, you know, Plainfield, New Jersey, was working at N1 and he hired me as a photographer Mm. to follow the N1 mixtape tour um, around. Wow. Yeah, and it's crazy because my day job was an account exec at Ogilvy and then on weekends I would fly to wherever N1 was. So my next move was widening Kennedy. And I feel like a big part of why I was right for that role and why I got that role was because, you know, I had the stamp of, oh, he works at Ogilvy. Mm -hmm. So he obviously understands advertising to some degree, Mm -hmm. but he also spends his weekends following around at the time, the most relevant basketball property outside of Nike. Mm, Um, You know, so that was a case that I made when I interviewed. I'm like, you're going to meet a lot of people that are probably really good at advertising or may know a lot about basketball, but you're not going to meet one person that has 
both of those sure. things, right? Yeah. And that sort of became my, my strategy throughout my life in terms of finding opportunity is what can I do or offer that no one else can? Mm. Um, and being able to articulate what that was. Mm -hmm. So that's that's how I got into, you know, advertising and that's how I started developing my craft and all, also just kind of separating myself in terms of being a brand marketer, but really deep diving into this idea of I'm going to live it, right? Like mm -hmm. I, had a, I have a good friend named Dan Cherry who always says experience over theory. So mm -hmm. for me, I, I look for jobs that allowed me to apply my experience versus theorizing sure. about, you know, what my passions were or, 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 or whatnot. Yeah. So I guess that and one experience kind of speaks to how you then moved into more brand-specific roles. So not the agency life, but you moved into kind of working more with brands specifically. So tell us about that, and then I want to ask you about entrepreneurship. So one of the things that I learned the importance of is developing your own brand mission, mm -hmm. right? Definitely. And for me, it was go where others won't go to tell stories that move the culture. Mm. And the whole idea there was, again, very early in my career, I didn't have an issue getting my hands dirty, right? So when I was at Wyden, you know, I was an okay account guy. I wasn't amazing. But the thing that separated me from other account people was the fact that, you know what, I'm working on Nike. I'm actually going to shoot the Nike campaign myself. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go to Dykeman and, mm -hmm. you know, the Bronx and wherever and actually shoot the campaign that we're working on. So, you know, it, it, it helped make up for the areas that I might have lacked in account management and whatnot, but that just became my thing. Sure. Um, so that really drove me, um, you know, throughout my career is finding jobs and opportunities where that was welcome, mm -hmm. you know, where people thought, wow, that's amazing um, that he does the photography thing. And honestly, it helped me because in advertising, there's always this conflict between account people and creatives, right. but a lot of the creatives I worked with embraced me because they felt like, oh, he's kind of a creative. Right. You know, he's not yeah. like your traditional suit. So yeah. that definitely allowed me to have more of an impact on the work that that we've done. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, like even to, to this day, like in a million years, I would have never thought I'd be working at a bank. Right. Um, but, you know, my experience at Chase has been awesome. And the simple fact that Again, if they wanted a banker or if they wanted someone that was a traditional marketer in, right. in the finance category, they want to pick me. But, right. you know, yeah. my, you know, other experience has helped differentiate me and mm. hopefully mm -hmm. make an impact on the work sure. for, the, for the better. Sure, sure, sure. I like that you said that you get involved because that's that's really key. And so when you started thinking about your your side hustles, mm -hmm. right? So not only the chop house, but just, you know, well, I guess through the chop house, but but how do you think about like brand is the baseline of most business, but I think so many people don't remember or understand that. So when you think about brand in terms of being a startup and then also growing a business and getting financing, what do you think are the the key aspects of establishing and then maintaining or sustaining a brand? I think um, I would say, first and foremost, knowing your audience. Mm -hmm. I think that's always the most important thing because that allows you to provide a service that they need mm -hmm. or want. Mm -hmm. I think also 
innovation. Mm. One of the things that I, I think about every day is 2017 when African Chop House started is a totally different time than mm -hmm. 2023. I yeah. mean, you know, you, you used to come to the house, so you, you remember like listening to Afro beats was almost like a luxury. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Right? Like everyone, everyone shared the same playlist. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 you know, my, my friend uh, TJ was probably the first, you know, first person to put together a playlist for African Chop House uh -huh. and he named it Jalof Jams. Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like to go from that to yeah. a place where, you know, Burner Boys selling out the, yeah. you know, City Field and Madison Square Garden, and you know, there's an Afro Beats, I'm a piano party right. every night. And you know, there's so many different things, you know, that are promoting the culture. It's a different place. So I can't offer the same thing that I did in 2017 because mm -hmm. there's more competition. Sure. So really thinking about how we innovate and how we do something different. And, mm -hmm. you know, for me, food has really been the differentiator, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's a million parties right now that are amazing that offer great music, variety of DJs and so on and so forth. But for me, one of the things that I've, like, it's not a chop, like I was literally having this conversation earlier and I said, it's not a chop house if it's not food there. You know right. what I mean? So yeah, exactly. for yeah. me, people can go party and, 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 and our thing has always been the pregame anyway, right? So yeah. I'm not I'm not looking yeah. to be your the night the your, all your, nighter. Yeah, yeah, your ten mm -hmm. to four AM mm -hmm. party, right? Like mm -hmm. you come to Chop House, get something to eat, you know, meet some new people, hang out, get a drink, mm -hmm. and then go do whatever it right. is that your your night involves. Yeah. And it, it really does play out that way. And so the question on the business model of it, because you understand the brand and and understanding an audience, then because every Chop House I've been to, I haven't paid. Mm -hmm. So there we have the question is, OK, well, OK, it's 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 free to the public. And so how does that happen? Well, I mean, initially, you know, just bet on myself. Right. Sure. Like, you you know, you fund it until you don't have to anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, once I was able to create a story that I could take to brands, mm -hmm. um, I had to I was able to stop paying for it myself. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the in initial investment is important. And again, once I felt felt like I had a strong product, I was able to put together a marketing plan or a deck and share it with a variety of brands that I felt were mm -hmm. complementary and aligned mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. what we were doing. Sure. And, you know, that definitely helped in terms of, you know, evolving it from just paying for everything. Sure. And it makes sense because you come from that that industry to understand how brands sponsor and that and that and whatnot. Okay, so enter Taranga. How did that happen? How did it? How did the idea come? How did you partner with Pierre? And how did you get the space? I mean, it seems like it was just a confluence with so many things that were just like, wow, that just happened. Tell us. Yeah, I think you know one of the things I said early was being open to opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, so when we decided to do African Chop House with Luau and LA during NBA All-Star, I was, you know, I honestly didn't even really have a plan on how I was gonna do it. My initial thought was, oh yeah, I'll just get an Airbnb and invite <laughs> like 50 people over. And you know, if it works, then we'll do it bigger the next year. And as luck would have it, Luau was really interested in doing something. Pops connected us and you know, I literally called all of my friends from a variety of backgrounds, you know, Eritreans, Ethiopian, Somali, Ghanaian, Nigerian, and we found restaurants that could cater. Mm -hmm. 
and Noah, Noah Levine, who was one of my partners at Taranga, he, you know, we had a conversation and he mentioned wanting to do something in, during All-Star and said, you know, we should let Pierre cater. So Pierre was one of ah. the folks that made the, the food for the event, obviously from a Senegalese perspective. And I mean, the event was a really big success. I mean, we probably had 400 people there. Mm-hmm. Um, and after that event, I think Pierre and Noah both saw the potential mm-hmm. or at least, wow, this is someone who understands the community sure. and obviously has a following. And they invited me to be one of the partners of Taranga. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had okay. no prior experience right. or even interest in opening a restaurant. Sure. Um, so I brought what I could in terms of marketing. And Noah, Pierre, and our other, other partner, Scott, had been looking for locations and, you know, the Africa Center. It just opened, right? Yeah. Or they were opening. Or they were opening. Yeah. And, you know, that felt like the right place to, to launch our, our first space. Uh-huh. So that's, that's how Taranga came about. And, you know, obviously it's been great because, you know, Pierre is such an amazing chef. You know, Hamadou, who is also one of our chefs, is really just kind of taking the reins and you know he's a workhorse amazing individual yeah. really respected in the in the community and you know like we've been obviously continuing to evolve post covid sure um, right and yeah. you know we opened a second location on 53rd and Lex which is in a food hall and you know i think the goal is again to continue to innovate which is awesome and being a restaurateur is not easy and so I give you kudos for that because it's it's I have friends. I grew up with a girlfriend who ran a restaurant and it was a 24 hour type of endeavor. And so much props for for being in that business and expanding and still continue to innovate. And so when you think about where you and this concept are sitting in three to five years, what does that look like? I think a big part of it is. Again, continuing to innovate, I think it's also important to think about where it makes sense for us to expand to. Mm-hmm. The food for me is is a tool that brings people together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's also why the space in Harlem is so important because, you know, there's not a lot of spaces that big mm-hmm. that, um, mm-hmm. you know, can, you know, bring people together, right? Like it's important to obviously have the the food and the restaurant aspect of it. But again, I look at it more of a community space, right? Like Mm -hmm. I grew up with Madiba, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. A place where, you know, the food was okay, but it was more about the space and being able to bring people together. Um, So finding those sort of locations in key markets, I think is is a part of the plan. So thinking about mindset, so that was kind of where I was hedging and heading. I want to ask you about mindset hacks. So what is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack? This is one that you practice, one that you know of, or one that you can imagine. So hopefully this answers your question, but a year, about a year ago, I had a job in esports and it was really out of my comfort zone. It was really out of my day to day. Um, and it, honestly, I wasn't a great fit for it. Mm. And I remember like my last day, like laying in bed and kind of just thinking about what was next. And three words came across my mind, right? 
compassion, patience, and peace. Mm. So from a mind hack standpoint, these are three words that I almost use as a rosary. You know what I mean? Like I I grab for when I'm in places of uncomfort, right? Passion is super important to me. If you look through my my career, if you look through my bio, you see a lot of basketball because that was something that I was very passionate about, right? So finding opportunities to combine my work with my passion is just something that I have to do. Sure. And I didn't I don't think I did that in, in at that job and I suffered for it. Mm-hmm. So it reminded me or taught me the importance of finding things that I'm passionate about. Mm-hmm. Patience, I think patience is important because the reality is I was in a position where a lot of opportunities were coming my way. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it was almost shocked that there were so many opportunities Mm -hmm. that I felt like I had to take one. Mm -hmm. And if I was more patient, I would have probably realized that that wasn't the right opportunity. And peace, I think peace is so important because you don't realize how important it is until it's not there. Mm -hmm. Right. So. I think finding and maintaining peace is always something that I remind myself I need to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's my mind hack. Oh, I I really like that. And um, interestingly, over the weekend, I was listening to um, Thich Nhat Hanh's Peace in Every Step book. And and so the idea of peace really um, resonates and vibrates in my in my psyche now. And I think I think we take it for granted, like you said, until it's not there, you don't even acknowledge that it's not there. And so thank you for that. I appreciate those words. All right, Stanley. It seems like your business is also pleasure in any case, but you've, you've talked a lot about business and, and how you came to be this professional that you are, but we wanna know who the Stanley is that is not chop housing or being a brilliant marketer. What do you do in your your other time? So I usually ask the question, are you a reader, a watcher, or a listener? And what are some of your favorite reads, watches, or listens? Or how else do you spend your quality time or your, your off the clock time? I'm definitely a watcher and a listener. A lot of podcasts. Okay. Um, and you know, I'm a, I'm a big hip hop guy. So, yeah. you know, I'll spend probably more time than I need to all over YouTube, all over Instagram. Yeah. Again, listening to a variety of podcasts. So what are some of your favorite podcasts? Joe Button podcast is is one of my go-tos. It's a guilty pleasure, but, you know, I definitely enjoy it. I definitely listen to the Earn Your Leisure podcast as well. Um, I think, you know, what they've done from a business standpoint is is pretty impactful and, and relevant. Right. Like these are two guys that were in finance and, you know, found a way to make finance interesting. Mm. Um, And obviously being in finance now, you know, Mm. seeing what they've done and how they've done it is pretty interesting to me. Mm. What's another good podcast that I listen to? I'm also, you know, obviously really into music and marketing. There's a podcast by another Ghanaian, Justin Adu. Um, that I listen to and, you know, he interviews, you know, a variety of marketers and interesting people and talks about the importance of joy. So, yeah, those are those. That's a good three. Okay, yeah. And so we are on the in the the year of hip hop's 50th anniversary. And so you mentioned loving hip hop. So when did you first fall in love with hip hop? I will credit my older brother Mm -hmm. with giving me a deep love and understanding of hip hop. I had an older brother who lived in the Bronx 
Shout out Tracy Towers. Mm-hmm. But yeah, my older brother lived in the Bronx in, in the 80s. And, you know, he would come visit me in New Jersey and always bring records. Yeah. Right. Because he DJed. Oh, okay. Um, and he would bring a variety of records and just tell me how much I don't know. Oh, okay, right. <laughs> you don't know older, about this. Big brother yeah, stuff. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember the Jungle Brothers. Mm-hmm. I remember mm-hmm. Q-Tip. I remember mm-hmm. Big Daddy Kane. Those were, you know, probably three of the records that I remember him him playing and, and, and talking about. And, you know, just being around that and hearing it, you know, it just stuck with me. Sure. And I think one other important thing, you know, anybody that really knows me knows that, you know, KRS-One, Boogie Down Productions, mm-hmm. favorite group of all time, favorite sure. MC of all time. Sure. Nobody can argue differently with me. Like, it, it, there, I mean, there's just certain conversations yeah, that I can't like even have with people have, if right. we're not on the same page there. Sure. So, the, you know, Public Enemy as well, but I think Boogie Down Productions was really important to me because as a as a youngster coming up in an African household, looking for identity mm. and looking to figure out who I was and all those things, it was really hip hop that brought me back to my roots. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. Because, I mean, obviously when your parents are telling you who you are, where you're from, and so on and so forth, as a kid, you rebel from that, right? Mm-hmm. Like you don't hear yeah. it the same way. But yeah. when Boogie Down Productions told me about my my heritage and my my history and Jungle Brothers talked about it, it sounded different and it felt cooler and it gave me, you know, validity. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that was also an important piece of why and how I fell in love with hip hop because it helped me find who I was. I never even thought of it that way, but yeah, I get it, especially for us who grew up here, right? So obviously you're not getting a lot of information in school and all of that. And you're right, your parents tell you, and you know, I've never didn't believe it, but the music that was a big validation. So, so interesting. Okay. So speaking of music, because we're talking about the hip hop of then and the hip hop of now. And so I venture to say that there is no hip hop right now. And so I wonder if you also agree. Similarly, I'm not so sure that there is even R&B anymore. So thinking about the genres of music that we now are are, are exposed to, how how do you how do you see the placement of hip hop in the next 50 years? I mean, that's a great question. I think one of the things that we realized in this time that we're in is hip hop is just as much of a business as it is just music, right? Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. the the luxury that we had coming up was nobody was really making money mm-hmm. doing hip hop. Right. It was, again, it was a passion, right? right? right. So right. even yeah. though we saw, you know, MCs driving fancy cars or wearing, you know, jewelry they bought at in Queens Plaza or <laughs> Albee Square Mall or whatever, right. you know, it told us a story and it felt like something to connect to whereas now this idea of business is is something that a you know majority of the artists have if they're not learning you know it's definitely something that's on their mind right like no one thought about owning you know liquor brands and a variety of things that are associated with like you know hip-hop artists and success and i think that's obviously impacted the music right Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. those guys really just did it from the art i mean just think about this right like 
we grew up in a time where this concept of a cipher was a real thing, right? Mm -hmm. This idea mm -hmm. of freestyling was a real thing. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. the best freestyle, the best would at a drop of a dime, drop a lyric. Right. Whereas that shit doesn't really happen anymore. And oh. if you challenge someone on why they don't do that, it's because, you know, my, my style ain't free. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So like they, they're thinking about it from the standpoint of, of business. Everything mm -hmm. is, is business related. So that's obviously had a an impact on the music. And then, you know, one of the things that obviously is a challenge is just the record industry in general yeah. in terms of the messaging right. that they, they're pushing and, and things of that nature, the artists that, that get the shine. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think all of those things are having an impact on, on the quality of music. And then also just think about how hard it was to make music when we were coming up, right? right. Like, you know, the idea of having to be in a studio mm -hmm. with whoever you're recording mm -hmm. with and mm -hmm. the you know, cost of studio time, right? Like you, you couldn't go in there and play around, right? right like right. you really had to go in there with, here's what I'm doing and Serious you know mission. what I mean? Yeah. Mission and have rehearsed before mm -hmm. you got in there because you're paying for the time that you're there. Whereas now like people can literally record, you know, stuff on their iPhone and just yeah. email it over. Right. And you know, they'll edit out the background noise and sure. so on and so forth. So the music is definitely you know, the opportunity to collaborate is greater, but it also, you know, I think is taken for granted to some degree because there is so much more ease in, in creating. Mm -hmm. And I'm, you know, I'm not gonna criticize the music because what I do realize is, you know, the thing that's powerful about music isn't necessarily the, the quality of it, it's, it's the ability to make people feel something, right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. what I feel when I listen to music from my childhood is totally different than what my daughter feels when she listens to, you know, whatever she's listening mm -hmm. to. Um, and I think like, you just have to be respectful of that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, it doesn't connect with me the same. Sure. But, you sure. know, I'm also 45 and right. I'm listening to, you know, a you know, 30 year old yeah. or 20 year old you know, talk about his life experiences, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of those things have to be taken in, in consideration, right? Like, you really can't compare, you know, Tupac to one of the Migos or whoever because it's just a different time. Yeah. And I'm listening to it with 45-year-old ears versus listening to it as a as a 20-something. Yeah, I mean, I feel you on that, like, for real, for real. But I feel <laughs> like... But I feel like... I mean, there are so many dynamics that are bringing it to that point. But I, I feel like I was just watching something today that was showing people dancing to Michael Jackson back in the day, right? So it was like, oh, look at the people dancing Michael Jackson back in the day. And I, and I was thinking to myself, I'm like, we dance that same way now. So when I when I think about like they were whatever age they were then and we're whatever age we are now, I'm not sure that I feel a timelessness in the ways of of music anymore. And as you to your point, the times are different. And so what I appreciate always about music is that it has been a meaningful part of changing the spirit of a generation. And what I lament is that whatever's going on with music now, I'm not so sure is going to be the kind of change that we need to see to move our for progress or progress progression of like just humanity. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a challenge that you know we'll, we'll obviously have to wait and see yeah. how it continues to evolve. But right. I, I think again, the the reality is music was timeless when we were coming up again because of the 
energy and yeah. the effort. I think, I mean, think about it. Like there's a stat, I know I'm going to get it wrong, but there's basically hundreds of thousands of songs uploaded to Spotify on yeah. a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so when you yeah. get an album, it's not like when we got a tape or a CD and like you, you know, like just based on, you know, economics, right? Like right. you sat with that tape for a week or a month or whatever it was yeah. just because you couldn't afford to buy a bunch right. of tapes it's at true. once, right? It's true. And you knew every word because... Exactly. And you listen yeah. to that one tape over yeah. and over again. And I think now, like you're almost, I know for me, like I'm almost rushing to get through music because mm -hmm. there's so much other music mm -hmm. to listen to. Mm -hmm. And if you if you miss a day, yeah. then you got to play catch up. You right. know what I mean? So yeah. I think like those are some of the things that you know, we're facing in terms of options that prevent music from being timeless. Mm -hmm. Like you, you you, don't have the time for music to be timeless, you know, because <laughs> yeah. you're, you're trying to keep keep up. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? And, and I think, you know, for folks like us, that's why I end up just listening to old stuff. Right. You know you're what I mean? So, yeah. 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 You're so right. That's so true. I'm so glad you said that because that you're right. It's it's so much and it's the the rush to keep up. Yeah, I hear that. So you said you're a watcher as well. So any gems that you can uh, direct us for that are good watches over the weekend? Yeah. Um, Netflix has a documentary on I think it's called Ladies First. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. good friend Dream Hampton and Carrie Twig did an awesome job of telling the story of some of hip hop female pioneers. Yeah. Really enjoyed that. Nice. Thought that was brilliantly done and an amazing watch. Wonderful. So I would definitely tell people to check that out. Okay. Stanley, this has been so much fun. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And let me ask what you would like to leave, what nuggets you'd like to leave with our audience today. First and foremost, I want to thank you for reaching out and allowing me to do this. I mean, we've obviously known each other a long time, but this is probably the longest conversation we've ever had. I know, right? Um, and I, I just appreciate having the opportunity to, to speak. And a lot of times you take for granted what your experience has been, your journey has been, and it's important to stop and reflect on the good, the bad, the lessons, and how hopefully all of that can help influence or inspire the people listening. So thank you. Nice. Thank you. Thank you, too. Thank you. All right, listeners, this has been another episode of the podcast. You can catch us Tuesdays with new episodes at GlocalCitizensPod.com or wherever you get your podcast. Be sure to like, share, subscribe, leave us a review. I know you are tired of me saying this, so just do it, folks. Leave a review. It helps folks find good content on the Internet. You can find Stanley and African Chop House in the show notes, so be sure to check those out. They're always very rich. And until next time, bye for now.